I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Aaron Hill, who is the Assistant Director of Policy and Public Affairs at Community Housing Cymru. And we're going to talk about um, uh, various matters concerning housing in Wales. It's a massive issue. Uh, And first of all, uh, Aaron, um, there are quite a few listeners who probably aren't too acquainted with you. So if you could give us um, your background, essentially. Yeah, thanks, Martin. So start at the beginning, really. I I grew up in Bridgend. Um, I guess, interestingly, I suppose grew up in a very non-political family, so to have ended up working in policy, public affairs, is sort of a bit of a strange route, but my intention was always to have a career in the law, um, and I went into a law degree in Swansea Uni, and around that time there were some pretty well-publicised um, mental health issues with young people in Bridgend, actually. Um, which that was the suicide stuff. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people remember, and actually I, I knew a few of the people involved in that, it was a really tough time as a town, and I think actually... My first real political involvement, I, I decided to write a strongly worded letter to the Daily Mail for their depiction of Bridgend. Um, and it, it just created this sense, I think, amongst me and a lot of my friends that, that we wanted to change something. And I decided law probably wasn't the route to do that. So changed my degree, did law and politics joint honours. And that took me into, into politics. And, and I guess I've never really looked back. That was, that was what I've been passionate about, been interested in. Um, and so to where I am today, I've gone through various policy public affairs roles, worked in the Assembly a little bit and on a few campaigns, and just really passionate about housing and, and trying to tackle the housing crisis. Working with housing associations has really, really shown me the, the great work that they're doing, actually, and, and yeah, really excited about actually some of the, th- some of the future for them. What strikes me, uh, really, Aaron, is that while I think most people, when they think about it, would recognise that there is a housing crisis because for young people these days to be able to afford to buy a house and that's the traditional route that people are supposed to take or that um, they've been conditioned to expect to take it's increasingly difficult and I mean there are a lot of people who are actually in uh, pretty well-paid jobs who can't afford to buy a house these days so that whole dream if you like of being a property-owning democracy uh, which was what I suppose prompted Margaret Thatcher or that she used to rely on when she was um, changing the law to enable council house tenants to buy their own homes. I mean, it was all really built on this principle that the ideal position for people to be in is to own their own homes. And that is not the view that is held in a lot of other European countries, uh, actually. Um, And I think in countries like Germany, it is significantly less the case that people own their own homes, that people are much more comfortable about renting there, and even aspirational people uh, rent rather than buying their houses. So how would you characterise the housing crisis from the perspective of would-be home buyers? I think that's right, Martin. I think the actually the, you know, the housing crisis is, is multifaceted. The property-owning democracy is, is a very British idea. Um, and what we see is it, it spans a whole range of a range of experiences across the housing crisis. I, I had a discussion with my friend this week, actually, and he said the housing crisis is not you not being able to afford a home. It's people who are homeless on the street. But actually, what, what that story tells is actually a, load, a lot of people affected in lots of different ways. And it's a market that's not working right from the top where people might be looking to get onto the property ladder to 
the fact that we're not building enough social housing, we're not building enough across across the whole market actually is the truth. Um, and it comes back to a supply side crisis. We're not building enough homes right across Wales and actually right across the UK. Um, and I think the interesting thing that you know, I've I've seen working with housing associations is is an ambition to compl- to overcome that. We saw yesterday there were some stats published that there are s- over sixty thousand people on housing waiting lists in Wales. Um, there were a couple of local authorities missing from those statistics, so the, the figure is actually probably much higher than that. Um, and what we've seen is housing associations are essentially now the main contributors to tackling the housing crisis in Wales. We've delivered over successive governments actually the, the one Wales government and the previous Welsh Labour government we've over delivered on the targets they've set for social housing um, we are on course to deliver the 20,000 target that Welsh government have set this time around and actually our ambition now goes much further than that so we we brought our members together last year housing associations in Wales asked them what they want to achieve over the next 20 years and they told us over the next 20, 20 years we want actually to change the conversation not just about numbers um, but we want to make good housing a basic right for all in Wales. And to get there, there were a number of commitments. The headline in that, 75,000 homes over the next 20 years. And actually within that, they said social housing will always be at the very core of what we do. So out of those 75,000, 65,000 will be for social rent. But what we're seeing is housing associations increasingly looking across the market and trying to trying to help people who want to move on or who want who want to become a homeowner. So we've seen models recently like Rent to Own, which was launched by the Welsh Government, actually Welsh Lib Dem, Manifesto Pledge, which was put into the Programme for Government by Kirsty Williams, where you can rent a home at market rent from a housing association, and a small portion of that rent each month is then put towards a deposit, which you can buy the home with after a number of years. So really interesting, actually, it, there, is a, there is a demand right across the market for home ownership. Still, that idea of a property-owning democracy is, is still there. But you, I think you just need different models to get there now. It's not about that traditional model of maybe your, your parents lending you some money to, and then you pay them back for the deposit, or actually being in a position where you earn a relatively modest wage and you can get on the property ladder, which was the case only 20, 30 years ago, perhaps. And now a range of support being, in, being put in place. So rent-to-own, shared ownership, help-to-buy, the range of products that people can access. Because the actual amount of money that you need to buy a house these days is much greater than used to be the case in terms of the multiple of your income, isn't it? I mean, it used to be the case that, what was it, two or three times your salary, going back quite a few years? Yeah. And now what is it? It's about six times your salary, isn't it? I think, yeah, it's close to close to seven, actually, seven times your salary. And, and you know, the, the amount of deposit you require... People aren't able to save because we know that we know that renting, certainly in the private sector, can be can be more expensive. So that can prohibit people's ability to save to build up that deposit. And so some of these schemes, the rent to own one I talked about, help to buy, for example, the government will give you a small loan, which actually gives you the deposit, which then allows you to access the mortgage market. But what we're seeing is since 2008, mortgage lenders have, have tightened their criteria. It's been more difficult, um, and so there's increasing pressure then on on social housing, on actually on the private rented sector as well. The private rented sector is growing more quickly than any sector in Wales, and that's why we've seen probably Welsh government step into into more regulation of that of that sector. But I think what's key is that it, it comes back to the idea that good housing is a basic right. You know, the UN conventions on human rights talk about shelter. But it's it's more than that. It's what you, what you can achieve at home. Home is about home is about far more than a roof over your head. It's it's where you you know it's where you have your dreams. You you fall in love. You maybe you get divorced and have your children or all those sorts of things. That that whole life journey takes place in the home. And we know if that is a good home, it can it can make you healthier. Um, there's a really strong link between health and housing. And actually, 
the the benefits to the NHS of good housing with the right support are are intangible almost. Um, we need to get better at demonstrating that as a sector. But we also know that a good home actually makes you more connected with your local community. If you're in if you're in a settled home. Um, with, with a functioning community, strong local businesses around you, then you, we know the economy grows around that as well. And so interestingly, actually, as a bit of an aside, but in rural areas in particular, we, we tend to see a lot of opposition to, to new home building. But also, these quite often are the same people who are saying, well, my local pub's closing or my local bank's shutting down. Actually, you build communities with good homes. And, and it's so important to the fabric of those communities to, to connect in local people, to build in neighbourhoods. And housing associations are right at the heart of that. And we also know that good housing creates more prosperity. Um, housing is, is a fail-safe investment in terms of the jobs it creates. Um, we know that actually housing associations at the moment, from every pound they spend, 84 pence is spent in the, in the Welsh economy. We want to increase that to more, more like 95 pence in every pound. But we know that building homes and the support that's wrapped around it is good for the economy and good for the wealth of Wales. What's your view of the degree of regulation that there should be in the rented market? Because going back decades to when I was a young guy, there used to be much more regulation in terms of rent control. Mm. So you would have a situation where you would have a rent officer, and if there was a landlord... Uh, who was wanting to charge too much. Um, there were what were considered to be appropriate market rents that were considered to be reasonable uh, in the circumstances. And you could go to a rent officer, there'd be an investigation, and the rent officer would make a judgment and say, no, this landlord is charging too much. Mm. Um, we got away from that model uh, during the uh, Thatcher period. And we haven't really returned to it at all. But, I mean, I know, for example, I mean, my wife uh, used to live in Germany uh, when she was a teacher. And she lived in a flat in Hamburg where the rent was very strictly controlled. And um, people would know from year to year uh, that they wouldn't be faced with some big increase. But we don't have anything like that here, do we? I mean, do you think that there is a need for greater regulation? I guess there's a couple of parts to that question, really. So in terms of in terms of regulation of social housing, we are, I think, quite strongly regulated by Welsh Government, and that's absolutely vital, you know, to ensure value for money, a safeguarding of public money that goes into into associations and safeguarding of tenants. Um, it's really important. And it, there was a Public Accounts Committee inquiry, actually, into this last year, into the regulation of the sector, which concluded that, the regulation of our sector is effective. When it comes to rent, obviously I can't I can't really speak for the private rented sector, but social housing rents are regulated and they are set within within a formula by Welsh Government every year so you know actually roughly what the, that increase might look like. It's linked to inflation. Um, and it's really important that affordability is at the heart of that. And and they are while while that so this year CPI was at three percent um, plus one point five percent from what from Welsh Government Housing associations had the potential to put their rents up by 4.5%. Actually, a lot of them looked at where the jobs market is, where the economy is, and said, maybe that's not right in some areas, that that is not what's right for our tenants. When it comes to the private rented sector, I think the private rented sector play a vital role, actually, in overcoming some of the supply crisis that we're, we're seeing. Um, and there are there are rent controls in other countries. It's not something we are, I, I think, culturally used to anymore in this country. And what you will see is inevitably, if, if anything like that was to be brought forward, quite a lot of resistance from the private sector. And I think there's a balance to be struck. I think, obviously, affordability is absolutely key. I think you can overcome some of the affordability challenge that exists in the private sector, in home ownership, by building more homes. And your basic supply and demand 
um, argument. If you were to bring in regulations on rent control of the private sector, I think you would have to be careful not to then thwart supply, and which could actually deepen the crisis in the, in the longer term. There are obviously some well-motivated uh, private landlords uh, who um, have a responsible attitude towards their tenants and who want to provide good quality accommodation. But there are also some pretty uh, awful landlords who provide what is actually quite scummy accommodation. Um, I've seen some myself in Cardiff. I guess also the problem is that as it's regulated by the private rented sector is regulated uh, to the extent that it is by local authority, local authority is obviously under pressure in terms of its spending and it makes it more difficult for the degree of checks that perhaps would be ideal to be carried out. So I think that there are quite a lot of people across Wales who live in quite uh, poor accommodation and who probably feel frustrated because there's not much that can be done about it. It's interesting. I, I, um, I saw some friends over the weekend, and it's, it's just over 10 years since we went to university, and actually almost all of the reflections about our time at university were about the terrible standard of accommodation that we lived in. So it's definitely true that there are, there are some bad private landlords out there, and there is some substandard accommodation, and something needs to be done to tackle that. It comes back to the idea that good housing should be a basic right, um, and the powers, you know, I can only speak for the, for the housing association sector, not really for me to talk about the private sector, but the powers that local authorities have, some of them aren't maybe maximised in the way in which they, they could be. I think Rent Smart Wales, that coming in, a registration system, is the start of that journey really. And that is about identifying the landlords rather than regulating them. And I guess once that job is done and you've fully identified who those private landlords are, there is a decision for local authorities and for government there about where they want to go and how they might want to regulate that and improve standards. But for us, it's absolutely about making sure that good housing is a basic right. In terms of social housing, Aaron, the organisation that you work for is clearly the umbrella body for housing associations. There are those um, who have a particular political perspective who probably are a little sceptical about housing associations because they think that social housing really ought to remain the province of local authorities and we know some years ago there were some referendums that were taking place amongst tenants about stock transfer which is the idea of transferring council houses across to uh, social landlords i.e. housing associations and in some places the result of those referendums was that um, people were happy to have their their home transferred but in other places um, it was rejected. What do you think about this view that really it's wrong to have this sort of um, arm's length arrangement where you have housing associations rather than having under proper democratic control as some would argue. So I accept that that view exists although perhaps a bit less than it than it did historically. Um, I think when it comes to the stock transfer we saw 11 authorities in Wales transfer across to independent housing associations and I think what I'd say is is that I, I talked about that maybe that opposition to housing associations reducing. I think that comes down to the track record of delivery um, and what we've seen over the last over the last 10 years, I think housing associations have built more than 20,000 homes in Wales. You know, we are at the forefront of tackling the housing crisis. So I think that record of quality and delivery um, speaks for itself. 
We saw the stats published recently, actually, on the Welsh Housing Quality Standard, which was one of the main drivers for the stock transfer agenda. And 99% of housing association homes are now at that Welsh Housing Quality Standard. So I think it comes back to what can we deliver? Um, we are delivering 20,000 homes over the last 10 years, and we want to deliver 75,000 over the next tw 20 years. Um, and really, I think that is a persuasive argument to politicians or those who perhaps, perhaps ideologically don't see the case or the role for housing associations. There, I think it's that it comes back to that delivery, and, and that's the persuasive argument that we have. And what I'd say with the stock transfers is 11 transferred, and I think they've all got very different stories to tell, um, but they are all achieving actually fantastic things. So I'd point in particular Katrebi Conway in the north, um, a really fantastic story to tell. They've been doing lots of work with social enterprise. They've actually got a social enterprise arm of that business now, which is creating jobs locally, getting people far more involved, and they've got a great story to tell actually on their tenant involvement. Um, and then in the south, Merthyr Valley's Homes, really interesting model there. Merthyr Valley's Homes, I think, in terms of in terms of their journey of governance, is, is really really interesting. So they have moved to a complete staff and tenant mutual model. So they are now governed as as well as having the usual board structure. They have a democratic body which sits alongside that, which tenants are elected or tenants elect, um, and that makes important decisions on who goes on the board your rent increases each year and I think that's a fantastic model and when when politicians perhaps opposed stock transfers I, they probably didn't foresee that sort of level of involvement and that change in the governance that you've seen there and I, so I think they've got a good story to tell stock transfers and I think actually when we look at that ambition as a sector stock transfers and unlocking the potential of those once they they come out of that period of bringing their homes up to standards stock transfers are really vital to delivering that ambition and I know there are some really ambitious organizations out there to what extent would you say are housing associations answerable to their tenants and to society as a whole? Because uh, there has been quite a bit of criticism, hasn't there, of some of the very high pay levels paid to um, chief executives of housing associations and uh, quite a bit of grumbling about that and saying, you know, people saying, you know, our rents are going up and yet this person who's the chief executive is on some astronomical salary so I think there's, there's two questions there the first one comes back to to regulation um, and it's absolutely vital that there's an effective regulatory system in place and that as I say public accounts committee said that that framework is working it's improving and it is transparent how does it work in practice so essentially the Welsh government is the regulator um, there is a regulatory team within within the housing section of Welsh government who carry out in-depth assessments throughout the year, publish reg regulatory judgments at the end of or at the end of each year, each cycle, which passes a judgment on that organisation's financial viability and its governance and services. That is open to tenants. I think there is there is clearly work to do, and it comes it comes back. Housing associations are, are independent businesses, and they they take decisions on how how to involve tenants. There are a number of models. I mentioned Katrevi Conway. I think some of the work that they do on tenant involvement is fantastic. Merthyr Valley's Homes, um, and the previous model we talked about stock transfers before. The previous model has been, I think, to involve tenants. Perhaps we put them on the board. That hasn't always been the best model. Actually, I think a lot of tenants have felt. It's almost a token gesture to have four tenants on the board and, and that's not the best way necessarily to run the business. So there are lots of different structures. So you can have tenant scrutiny panels, for example, who play a role in things like setting rent, deciding which which services are, are delivered where. 
Um, so Mid Wales Housing is a good example, actually. If you log on to Mid Wales Housing's website, they've got a budget tool on there where you can go on and actually cast your vote on how you think the budget should be spent this year. So I think that's another good innovative example of tenant involvement. Ultimately, I think housing associations will always be answerable to the tenants. They are, they are the customers, um, and that is vital, and the way in which that is done will vary, but it's always at the forefront of housing associations' minds. When it comes to, it comes to salaries, the question you asked on that, um, I think that it's, an, it's an interesting debate. Um, it comes back to that point, though, that housing associations are independent businesses um, and also actually increasingly complex businesses. So in terms of, in terms of attracting the talent to, to run those organisations, be that a chief exec, a financial direct, finance director, or somebody else in the senior management teams, um, you, have to be, you have to be able to compete with other businesses. Um, so we are not just competing in a Welsh market here. And if you were to compare the salaries at a senior level in Wales with a senior level in England, we are significantly lower. But we are still attracting talent from from England, actually, um, from housing associations who bring their expertise of a different of a different system, different insights, and they're coming to Wales not because the salaries are high, but actually because the way social housing has been prioritised in Wales, social housing is still. Um, a key priority for Welsh government and working in that environment is quite attractive so it's not just about salaries um, and there's also something about reassuring reassuring lenders here as well so a key stakeholder in the housing association sector are are the lenders the way we fund our homes are through a little bit of government grant vital investment from government but also through lending from from banks institutional investors and when, when we are recruited or when housing associations are recruiting for those top roles, they need to be reassuring those investors that you are getting the best talent to, to manage and manage those investments. So you would say that uh, people who complain about the high salaries have just um, not really understood the position? There's a job to be done on, on our behalf, I think, to communicate exactly, exactly why those salaries are justified. But I think there is a strong case that they are they are reasonable salary for the job, the expectations and the responsibilities that come with it and the market in which housing associations are competing. In terms of the way in which housing associations are developing, I mean, is there a tendency towards amalgamation? Uh, are we finding that bigger organisations are being created as a consequence of swallowing up smaller ones? There have been um, there have been a couple of mergers. Um, so our biggest member now would be Pobble Group, which was a merger of Seren Group in in southeast of Wales and Gwalior in in Swansea area in southwest. And there there have been a couple. We're not moving towards an English model. So in England, they have been they have been called super mergers, where you're now seeing associations with 60,000 homes, massive massive organisations which don't look anything like anything we have in Wales. Um, it comes back to that that point though that housing associations are independent organisations and it is down to them to make those decisions on how they, they should be run. Now, if they think that they can achieve efficiencies or deliver more homes or deliver better services for tenants, actually, and that is the route that they choose to pursue, then that is something that, that should be looked at. But I think that it comes back to that vital point that they are independent. It's for those the individual boards to make that decision. It's not something that should be pursued, I guess, as government policy or policy in general. I suppose the danger is that if they become too big, they're going to become more uh, remote, both from their own tenants and from the communities within which the tenants uh, live. I think there is a perception with larger organisations that could be the case, but actually, I, I'm not sure there is not sure there is a clear pattern that small organisations are aren't necessarily the best at dealing with local issues compared to, compared to bigger organisations. I think there is a spread. There will always be a spread, and it comes back to knowing your community, ensuring your tenants are involved. And, and 
actually making those decisions about how your business is run and where your money's invested with the best with the best interest of your tenants always at heart, regardless of the size of the organisation. Do you think your housing association members are sufficiently tough on antisocial behaviour, which is obviously manifested by a minority of tenants? I think antisocial behaviour is always a difficult one, difficult one to manage. Um, you know, when it comes to there are significant changes coming through with the Rent in Homes Act, which was passed, I think, in 2015, um, and concerns actually about whether whether we'll be able to manage it in the same way. Um, it comes down to, I think, remaining ensuring that the, the interests of the community as a whole remain when you're managing antisocial behaviour. And that is always at the forefront of housing associations' minds, ensuring that their investments are protected, that the, the rest of their tenants are protected. Um, and so there's, there's more work to be done. There always is. Um, you, you never, you're never perfect. But we've got actually some working groups at the moment with South Wales Police and, and the Police and Crime Commissioner actually to look at how we can improve that. And I know when, when Carl Sargent was um, Housing Minister first time round, actually, he had a real focus on domestic abuse and trying to tackle some of that. And so housing associations, as part of that, part of their regulatory judgment at the time, they, were, they had to ensure that they had a domestic abuse policy in place. Um, and that's both internal, dealing with any staff issues, but also external, ensuring your communities are protected from that. So I think actually housing associations are up in their game on domestic abuse, antisocial behaviour. There is clearly further to go. Um, but we are working, as I say, with South Wales Police, Police and Crime Commissioner, Public Health Wales, organisations like that to try and overcome some of that. You're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. You've got very ambitious aspirations in terms of the number of new housing units that uh, you're going to build or your housing associations are going to build and that reflects uh, as you say the uh, the big housing shortage that exists uh, because there are a lot of people on housing waiting lists in Wales. I suppose another element to this is that in places like Cardiff which are growing quite rapidly there is serious concern about car congestion and there are only so many routes into the centre of Cardiff and I know that um, there is much concern about the fact that the policy tends to be, and there's been quite a lot of controversy relating to the local development plan, the policy is to uh, really quite considerably increase the number of houses in Cardiff. Um, and that raises various concerns in some areas about damaging the, uh, the landscape, about... Um, uh, damaging the the physical ambiance, if you like, of where people live, um, but also about creating massive new communities, uh, which are just going to lead to increased traffic congestion. Um, and it does seem to be positing a whole load of potential problems. Uh, that maybe haven't been looked at in the round. I don't know how you feel about this. Well, I, I quite often get stuck in some of the traffic that exists in Cardiff, Cardiff already. Um, and I, 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 I completely understand some of those concerns, I think, actually, around things like congestion. I think what's, what's key is, is the planning system, really, and ensuring that that planning system is, is effective um, and that it's not just about building homes in the right places. That is absolutely key. Every, every piece of academic evidence shows that the population of Cardiff will grow and actually so we, we did some research prior to Housing Horizons when we launched the, the vision of 75,000 homes and good housing was basic right 
about what Wales will look like over the next 20 years. And out of all of the local authorities in Wales, Cardiff is the only one where the working age population is predicted to grow in the next 20 years, which presents lots of challenges elsewhere, but a huge challenge for Cardiff. And the reality is people want to be where the economy is vibrant, where they can get a job. And we see enormous, I, I know I've said for Pregend earlier, enormous numbers travelling in already into Cardiff from the valleys, from the west, from, from the east too. Um, and you need to be able to provide those people with affordable accommodation. We know there's a housing crisis. We know those know those homes need to be built. But actually what we need to make sure, and this is for housing associations to consider alongside our partners in local authorities and, and Welsh government as well, is that the infrastructure is in place to support that. So when we're building homes, local authorities need to be thinking about what, what infrastructure is in place to support that. And that comes back to the planning system, to local development plans. There's an ongoing review, actually, of, of planning policy Wales at the moment. And I think some of the questions in that need to answer that. Because what we what we see is, actually, if you look at polling on the key issues of the day to people in Wales and the UK, housing and the housing crisis it is right up there. Um, and we are in a position, I think, where we, where we have persuaded people of the need to build the homes that we need as a nation but actually you, what you can create without if you don't get the infrastructure right if you don't get the whole package in terms of the community right around it is you can create opposition in future and people then you can end up in a position where you create a further housing crisis down the line because you've created those sort of nimby attitudes that against against building homes so I think you've got to get the whole package right it's not just about housing it's about a whole community and about the infrastructure that supports that. I know that one uh, issue that concerns people in various parts of Wales, and recently I've had a councillor from Blackwood uh, contacting me about uh, development plans in his particular area, and um, he is very keen on uh, seeking to ensure that the green belt is protected and that if there are new housing developments to go ahead, as we know they need to, that that should actually happen in uh, brownfield sites rather than on greenfield sites, but that the planning system uh, isn't sufficiently robust to be able to fend off uh, appeals by uh, developers uh, whose planning applications are turned down. So is that something that you think needs to be addressed? I think uh, you know the, the debate about the, the green belt in Wales has certainly not reached the, the levels it has in England, certainly in the, in the southeast. I, I think when it comes to the planning system, there's, there's an interesting debate ongoing. I think at the moment, it's absolutely vital that democracy remains at the very heart of the planning system. That you know that that link to local people, able to able to involve themselves in that process, is, is key. I don't think that is happening to the extent that perhaps it should at the moment. And what we're seeing, I think, increasingly is. And the point about appeals is very is really important. That appeals process is vital because quite often what we're seeing is local authorities turning down or planning committees turning down applications actually against the advice of officers. And so officers have, have done all the evidence gathering, they've shown the need for housing, this is in the local development plan and then it's turned down by a planning committee. And quite often when it comes to appeal, that is why the appeal is successful because all of the evidence has said these houses are needed, the local people support it. So there's something about involvement and how you involve people in that process because quite often the opposition comes too late in the process and if you're involving people at the earlier stage in a better way, then actually what we see is that opposition is quite often overcome. When developers, whether it be those housing associations, private developers, local authorities, when developers involve communities in the design of a, a, design of a, of a development 
um, we know that community that community is more likely to support it and is less likely to oppose it. So we all, as developers, all need to get better at that. And one example I point to actually are rural housing enablers. So rural housing enablers are employed by various organisations in the north by housing associations, some jointly by housing associations and local authorities, some directly funded by Welsh Government. Um, and they work in rural communities throughout that whole process and it can be a long process and I think there was a report on RHEs a few years ago where people weren't really persuaded of the necessity for them because the numbers that they were maybe churning out at the end weren't weren't massive. They're never going to be in local, um, in rural areas. But what they do is they get involved with the community at the earliest stage, identify where the housing need is. And I talked about people opposing housing and nimbyism earlier. Actually, what we see is quite often someone will say, I don't want homes built in my backyard. That is a perfectly justifiable argument, and I can, I can see all of the arguments for it. But when you get somebody like a rural housing enabler in to have that conversation, quite often what we find out is that person's 30-year-old son is living upstairs and wants to move out. And one of the reasons they can't move out is because there aren't any homes being built in the local area. And they need that to be able to, you know, to be able to go to work and, and all, those, all those sorts of things. So rural housing enablers have those sorts of conversations. They demonstrate that need and then they're involved in the planning process. And when we see that level of involvement, actually, we see far less local opposition. So there's a job to be done there, I think, in terms of involving local people. When it comes to planning, actually, one of the biggest barriers in terms of planning is, is actually access to land. Um, and one of the biggest failings of the lo- uh, local development plan system is that local local authorities haven't been identifying enough buildable land to support that local development plan. All those local development plans were supposed to be underpinned by a five-year land supply. I, I haven't got the numbers off the top of my head, but the numbers of local authorities who actually have got there is very low. Um, and that is a concern when you've got a demonstrable housing crisis, is that that land hasn't been identified. And the point on brownfield sites, absolutely, if there are, if there are suitable brownfield sites, they need to be developed out. Um, it needs to be done. Um, I point to a really good example in Newport of Loftus Garden Village. Pobble Group developed a fantastic brownfield site there into a garden village just off Corporation Road, um, and it's a fantastic community. They um, built essentially 10-year blind homes, so 250 homes. You're not able to tell the difference between what is social rented, private rented, and what is for sale. I think that's fantastic in terms of building communities, and at the heart of that is also a cooperative, not a shop, a housing cooperative, where tenants can, tenants essentially run their own little community right at the heart of that. And that's a really good example of, of taking a brownfield site, remediating it, and turning it into a community. The difficulty is some brownfield sites are more complex, require more re- remediation and more investment. And if we go in to tackle some of that, that, that needs investment from government or from local authorities and decisions about how you're going to overcome some of those barriers. Another issue that I'd raise would be the fact that in uh, quite a lot of housing developments, they're not exactly aesthetically pleasing, and there are uh, architectural challenges, I would say, about the uh, the quality of some of the houses that have been put up. Because, um, you know, I go round Wales from time to time, uh, and I don't think this is necessarily uh, specifically a recent phenomenon. Um, I was travelling on uh, a bus uh, which got, I think I got on a 5C instead of a 5 the other day, which was in the sort of vicinity of uh, Chirk and Ruabon around there. And I got diverted around these housing estates. And the architecture in itself I would describe as quite alienating. You know, if you don't have an area in which you're living where the architecture is sympathetic and it is quite alienating, then that 
can lead to other problems as well. Absolutely, it comes back to the design of the community and uh, and the the way it looks is is definitely part of that. I've just mentioned Loftus Garden Village. I'd point that I was a really good example of good practice actually in overcoming overcoming some of those problems. Um, I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. I think private developers have a particular model of developing homes um, where they have basically a pattern book and to de- develop at the prof- levels of profit that they need to make a site viable quite often you run off that pattern book and it's a choice of three or four different homes and you could drive anywhere in the country and those estates could be anywhere in the country. I don't think that is the case for housing associations. I think there are some housing, a number of housing associations who take great pride in the way that their homes look and it comes back to that design of the community and that always being at the heart of what they do. So Ron the Housing is, is a good example actually, I'd give, give them a plug. Some of, the, some of the developments they do are fantastic, small developments, they fit in with the lo- local area and that is, they're always sympathetic about, about how that looks, the commun- community it creates. It doesn't just come down to the design of the ha- home either, it's about the design of the, design of the streets. Do you build some commercial space into that? Because again, comes comes back to infrastructure and the conversation we were having earlier. You need to get the roads right. You need to get the shops, the schools, and all that sort of stuff. So you've got to be thinking about the whole, um, the whole site. And some of that comes down to the planning system and the way that works. Um, for example, quite often housing associations are actually a key contributor to the number of homes housing associations develop and build and, and provide are Section 106 contributions. Now, quite often, those homes are still built by private developers. You still see that. Explain what Section 106 contributions are for for those who don't know. Section 106 are um, a contribution that um, a developer has to make as part of of the planning process. So, for example, were I I a private developer to go to Cardiff Council today and say I want to build 20 homes, they will say actually four of those have got to be, it's an ambitiously high number, four of those would have to be affordable housing or maybe you'd have to give some money back to the council to pay for roundabout maintenance or to build a school or that sort of thing. So that's a Section 106 contribution. Um, quite often we see a private developer build a site. Section 106 contribution is built by the private developer and handed over to the association so we don't always have that input into the way the homes look or the design of them. Let's uh, move on to talk about homelessness. There has been a marked increase in the number of people who are sleeping rough. What do you attribute that to? Homelessness is, uh, and everybody says this, homelessness is extremely complicated and extremely complex and you can never attribute it to one reason alone. You're right, there has been a marked increase in particular in rough sleeping and I walk through Cardiff every day and it's become, I think it's quite pronounced actually, I think, you know, we reached a stage probably 10 years ago where it felt like rough sleeping had gone away. Um, or certainly what was nowhere near as prevalent as it is today. So the numbers have, numbers have really increased. Uh, homelessness is a range of experiences from rough sleeping to sofa surfing to staying in hostels and, and temporary accommodation. And you have to be able to tackle the whole, um, the whole spectrum of homelessness. And when I talked about the housing crisis earlier, this is obviously the most, you know, the most pernicious element of it. This is the, the, hard, and the hardest bit to deal with, actually. Um, we have been seen, I think, in Wales as, as a world leader in terms of our legislation. So our legislation has moved the focus away from tackling homelessness at the end point to prevention, but we're still seeing lots of people on the street. And England have actually followed our lead on that legislation. I know another number of other countries have looked at it, but it's still clearly not tackling the whole problem. And ultimately, I think the one thing, if I were to pinpoint one thing that has contributed, contributed to that, it's welfare reform. Um, we have seen over the last, well, probably the last eight to ten years, actually, um, a raft of welfare reforms, right from changes to employment support 
and um, disability allowances back in, in the late 2000s to today where you see universal credit rolled out and in between changes to things like the bedroom tax and, um, and benefit cap. And they are placing enormous pressures on families. Those reforms alongside stagnant wages are, are causing an affordability crisis so people can't afford to maintain their homes, can't afford to pay huge levels of personal debt that exist in society. Lots of different factors but welfare reform is definitely turning the screw on that. Um, and making it more difficult for people to maintain their tenancies. Um, in terms of solutions, preempting the next question, I think I'm really excited to see Rebecca Evans, the housing minister, has announced that we're going to trial Housing First in Wales. Um, housing First is a model whereby rather than quite often in homelessness, people have had to meet a number of conditions to then get back into a tenancy, whether that's private private rent sector, social rented. Um, so you must receive support for any of the issues you might have had, be that mental health, substance abuse, um, you, could have been, you could have suffered from domestic abuse yourself. That support would need to be put in place first. Housing first is exactly what it says on the tin. You get the home first and then the support is wrapped around you. I think it's a really exciting model. In Finland, they've made, they're making pretty bold claims, but they have essentially eradicated homelessness. And street homelessness in, in Finland is now almost invisible in that it doesn't exist. What I would say is that housing first, for housing first to work, you have to tackle one thing I talked about earlier, the supply crisis. You've got to have the homes to put these people into. And you've got to get the support right around them. Um, so there's there's an ongoing debate at the moment in Wales about the Supporting People Fund. The Supporting People Fund has been around for about 10 years. No, longer than that. Um, about 14 years, I think. And that delivers a range of support from the, the substance, abuse, substance abuse, mental health services, sort of things I've spoken about. And it's been enormously successful in saving the NHS money, preventing people from becoming homeless. And there's a debate ongoing. That money has been protected over the last few years. We've run a really successful campaign with Commonwealth Cymru and others to keep on supporting people. But there is now pressure on that in terms of merging with other grants. Um, and, and where that's happened in England, where that ring fence has fallen down in England, we've actually seen supporting people money disappear because of the pressures on local authorities. And I completely appreciate those pressures, but this is a vital fund which is preventing homelessness and support, keeping people out of hospital. So there needs to be some consideration around if we're going to deliver this housing first model, how we fund the support around it and just making sure we get the funding in place and make sure that's right. In terms of rough sleepers, if you speak to Cardiff Council, they will say to you that we have more than enough places, uh, both in our own accommodation and in uh, other um, agencies' accommodation, to accommodate all of the rough sleepers. But the people who choose to sleep um, rough have made that choice um, and there's nothing more to be done for them I mean they can be encouraged to take up these hostile um, places but they they choose not to do so is that a legitimate point for Cardiff Council to make? I don't know the exact numbers in Cardiff but I would suggest that that, that sounds right um, I were recently um, during the snow that we had recently I went over to Taff Housing Association who set up a day shelter um, speaking to a number of a number of rough sleepers who popped in throughout the day, there is a cultural problem within some some night shelters um, in terms of in terms of substance abuse in particular, mental health um, conditions and people not feeling safe within those. So some rough sleepers choose not to engage with services for those reasons. And actually, that is why housing first is a good model because you're not necessarily putting people in a situation where they feel uncomfortable. Um, and, and as I say, homelessness, rough sleeping is is really complex and. You, we don't know day to day what some of the some of the 
situations that those people on the street are going through and why that might lead actually to to people choosing to stay on the street at night. Um, the important thing is if we can provide accommodation through housing first that allows them to have their own space to wrap the support around them to overcome some of that then we can possibly overcome that. Um, because I know that there are people who are sometimes conflicted about what they should do when they're confronted when they walk down the street by um, people who are rough sleepers or at least giving the impression they're rough sleepers because I, I think it's probably the case that some of the people who one might see during the day uh, who are wrapped up in blankets are not necessarily to be seen there at night um, sleeping. Um, but people I think are conflicted about whether they should give them money or not um, yeah. because some people take the view that um, if they give them money they're just going to use it to buy drugs I think I think people are conflicted and actually as well as as well as the service provision of shelters in Cardiff being pretty good the the service provision in terms of uh, hot food and drink that available to, to rough sleepers is is pretty good but my personal view on this is whether somebody is is rough sleeping or begging on the street they require a bit of help and whether that's financially from you or from society, from support services, they require they require support, they require help if they're in that situation. And I don't think it's for it's for me to say whether you should be giving that person a coffee or a fiver to help them out. I think that that is down to individuals. Or I would say there's been a really interesting scheme launched recently in Cardiff called Give Differently, which Cardiff Council are involved in. And I think it's really exciting actually. On the Hayes, you can now go past and tap your tap your contactless card, and it donates two pound. But that money goes direct to homeless people through through grants. And I think that's a really interesting model in terms of enabling people to live independently. Um, but it's not for me, me to say whether whether or not you should be you should be giving your cash to, to somebody on the street. I think that's a decision for individuals. There are numerous ways in which we can support. I've read an argument put forward by, for example, a right-wing blogger and a nationalistic right-wing blogger that... There are people from some of the big cities in England with various social problems who are being sent to Wales and are causing social problems in Wales. Uh, and they're being provided with homes in Wales. Um, effectively, they're being billeted from English cities like Manchester, Birmingham and Liverpool to Wales, bringing their social problems with them. Do you think there's any validity in that argument? I've, I've seen no evidence of it personally. Um, what I would say is that some of that comes down to allocations policies, and I, I'm not aware of any local authority in Wales with an allocations policy that doesn't have a strong local link in it. So you have to prove a demonstrable local link to that area if you are to get a home on the social housing waiting list. Interestingly, that I haven't seen evidence of that accusation, but what we saw when the benefit cap came in was that the benefit cap in London is £26,000. In elsewhere now it's 20000 It was twenty three. That's been lowered. That 26000 benefit cap doesn't get you very far in London when accommodation is at the heart of the, the benefit you're receiving. So housing benefit makes up the greatest proportion and is also the first thing that is reduced when you hit the benefit cap. So what we saw actually is, and it very, very, very low numbers actually, of London authorities engaging with some Welsh authorities to see whether there was accommodation that was more suitable for some of the some of those families, but that those are very low numbers, and I've certainly not seen any evidence of the, of the claims of essentially dumping people in local authorities from England. What do you think of this relatively recent change that was introduced, where 
instead of housing benefit being paid directly to the landlord uh, by the local authority, it's uh, actually given to the tenant and then for the tenant to um, to pass on the money to the landlord, and that is obviously resulting in a degree of slippage. Um, isn't that simply going to make it more difficult uh, in terms of increasing the supply of housing at this sort of low end of the of the market. This is at the very heart of why um, universal credit is difficult for social housing tenants and for housing associations. Actually, um, the vast majority of tenants currently have their their housing benefit paid directly to the landlord by DWP. When universal credit comes in, you will get one monthly payment um, of six the six main benefits. Any of those you receive all in one, and you will then be expected to pay your rent. There are there are circumstances where DWP will put a procedure in place called an alternative payment arrangement. Um, so if you're vulnerable or if you can show that you've had lots of rent arrears in the past, then they will support you in that. But for the vast majority, they will have to pay direct to their landlord. The reason that is difficult is because we know that I've spoken to tenants who said, I don't pay rent because for so long they've had that money paid directly. Now, there's a cultural thing to overcome. And in terms of in terms of enabling people to be independent, um, I, re- I appreciate where the UK government are coming from on this. But the truth is, we're not all politicians all receive their pay monthly like I do like you do live off that salary for a month and are able to survive we all know when it comes to the end of the month actually it can get a little bit tight sometimes but for the vast majority of people on low wages that's not that's not the truth they are often paid weekly fortnightly and so they become very good at budgeting on those weekly or fortnightly cycles to move those people to a situation where they are then paid monthly by DWP it creates problems in terms of budgeting so Housing associations put a huge amount of support to help them with personal budgeting. We've been working closely with people like Citizens Advice, um, local authorities actually who've received funding to help with this sort of thing. Uh, but it's still a challenge. And when you speak to tenants, uh, it's not, not in Wales, but a, a London housing association did a bit of research probably six, seven years ago. They asked their tenants and 98% of their tenants said they would rather that the money was paid direct to the landlord because it deals with any of those budgeting challenges immediately. They haven't got to think about it. And I know I've had days where I've, I've just moved home. I've, I've had days, oh, have I set up my direct direct debit for my rent now? You know, those sorts of things that everyone can go through. And often some social housing tenants have some of the most chaotic, chaotic complex lives, juggling two or three part-time jobs on zero hours. And, and also the way universal credit is calculated will make that more difficult. So there'll be less certainty over the amount of money you'll be getting. And it just presents all sorts of challenges. In terms of how that might impact on the housing crisis, if housing associations aren't receiving that rent, that places pressure on our revenue, and ultimately it is that revenue that supports the repayment of the loans that build homes. There's another uh, right-wing uh, point that I still hear. Uh, it's one that's been around for quite a long time, but um, even in the changed circumstances of today, it's still uttered, which is these people who live in social housing are effectively subsidised by the state. Uh, Some of them, many of them, could afford to pay more. Why should we allow people to be living in this kind of accommodation? Uh, They should be turfed out and replaced by people who really deserve it. I think the answer is we should build more homes so that social housing is not the limited resource that it is currently and that actually we've moved to a situation where social housing was a far bigger sector than previously that has been diminished through not building enough, through right to buy, historically. 
um, we should be building more to get to a point where social housing is more of a tenure of choice. We build our, our quality requirements because of our relationship with government and the grant we receive. Our quality is higher than in the private sector. We know that it is often more desirable to live in, so we should build more of it and have this um, more affordable option for more people. And of course, there's also this um, issue about uh, the end to the right to buy, isn't there? Because the Welsh Government has legislated to remove the right to buy. And the now independent Assembly member, Neil McAvoy, got into trouble with his party because he was uh, opposing the idea of removing the right to buy. And he argues that for working class people uh, who perhaps traditionally have not been on uh, very high salaries, the way for them to be able to enter the property market was to take advantage of the Margaret Thatcher-inspired right to buy their homes, and that taking that right away is effectively um, stamping on working-class aspirations. That's what he argues. What, what what would your perspective be on that? Well, and, and Neil McAvoy wasn't the only opponent of of right to buy in the Assembly. There were you know there's some long long debates, and we had some interesting conversations with the Conservatives as well over this. We we support the end of the right to buy. We think it's the right thing to do, given the diminution of social housing over the years. I think it's a precious public asset, and it should be protected. People who live in social housing, for the discussion we just had. The, the shortage of social housing. They're incredibly lucky to live in, subsidi- in subsidised homes. And uh, I guess by luck, that does not necessarily grant you the right to buy that home. If we were in a situation where social housing was, was, was vast and everyone had access to it, then we would maybe have, be having a different conversation. But the truth is, it is a precious asset which has been diminished over the years and needs to be protected. Now, we talked at the start about the range of home ownership options, actually, which are then available to tenants, or not just tenants, but anybody who wants them from Housing Association now, actually, some of those work far better in terms of ensuring that the correct amount of money goes back into a Housing Association to build a new home. And that is what was lost under the right to buy, is because those homes were bought at a discount, there wasn't enough money going back into the system to build a new one to replace it. And if that had been overcome at the very start, then we would be in a very different position today in terms of the number of social homes we would have in this country. And I think there are now better options and a wider range of options actually for people want, who want to buy a home affordably, which are, I think, improve, improve on the offer that Right to Buy gave. What I've learned is a much more complicated uh, kind of housing crisis of um, many different facets um, than many people might realise. Where we are now, with plans that there are afoot, are you more optimistic than you might have been, or are you pessimistic about the future for housing? I'm, I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm normally optimistic, but we, we ran the Homes for Wales campaign in the run-up to the 2016 Assembly election, and we were in a position where, as I said, housing was, was recognised as a priority in all polls, um, and if you speak to people, people recognise there is a housing crisis. Actually, every every party elected to the Assembly in 2016 said, we support Homes for Wales campaign, we recognise there is a housing crisis in Wales. When we published Housing Horizons and our vision of good housing as a basic right for all in December, we called on the government to um, carry out a policy review of housing. It's been 10 years since the last one. The Essex Review laid the foundations really for the housing association sector we now know, looked at things like regulation, financing of the sector. We called for a policy review, said it's 10 years on, let's have a look 
how we how we now be more ambitious how we now deliver more so i'm optimistic i'm optimistic that review will happen and it will help us to deliver that good wales where good housing is a basic right for all aaron hill thank you very much indeed thank you thanks for listening to my podcast martin shipton meets we'll be back for more next week Thank you.